Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation. And the Dnieper Natural History Programming Fund for KNME-TV. And viewers like you. This week on New Mexico in Focus, art imitates life as native lawyer and playwright Mary Catherine Nagel talks with us about her latest work. They might be learning about a moment in history, but they're not just watching it on the History Channel or in a movie theater. They're experiencing it in a very real, personal way because it's right in front of them. And our land returns with a closer look at tiny bacteria that caused big problems in our lakes. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. That bacteria we're talking about is commonly known as blue-green algae. Bloom shut down two lakes this summer. Laura Paskus finds out why. Our weekly opinion panel takes on three topics, starting with the president's decision to divert military funding for a border wall. Its impact here in New Mexico tops $100 million. And our state is a leader, or at least plans to be, when it comes to a renewable energy portfolio, the line discusses New Mexico's move away from coal. We start with a new take on an old plan, funding early childhood education with money from a permanent endowment. Here's the line. More money, more programs. For about a decade now, advocates of early childhood education programs have been asking lawmakers to sign off on a plan to take more money from investments earned on New Mexico's early, or I'm sorry, nearly $19 billion land grant permanent fund to pay for more programs. Now, while there's broad support for early childhood learning, paying for it is controversial. The latest idea is to create a standalone endowment. Now, here to hash out the prospects is the Line Opinion Panel. We're joined this week by Line Regular and UNM Law School Professor Serge Martinez. Good to have you back, sir. Another Line Regular and Principal of the Garrity Group, Tom Garrity, is with us. And two familiar faces that we're happy to have back at the table, starting with President and Owner of Sierra's Social Digital, Crystal Sierra's is with us, and President and Owner of Collective Action Strategies, Giovanna Rossi. Giovanna, the Lujan administration would set aside, here's how it's going to go. They're going to set aside $300 million for three years, right? And it, would, and, and it says it could pay out about $50 million a year once the endowment hits a billion. Now, that's not a lot of money, $50 million, but it's something to start with. Just on the back of the envelope thing they've sort of put out there, what's your initial gut reaction to the, to the amounts, the three hundred and the $50 million? Is, is, is that, that going to work in your mind? Well, I think, first of all, it's worth saying that it's a step in the right direction. Okay. That's, no, no, that's fair enough. Like it's Absolutely. opening the door. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know that it's, you know, going to be enough money to do everything right. that, that early childhood needs. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think the governor's saying that it is, right? I think she's saying, mm -hmm. look, we have the opportunity to really collaborate here, create mm -hmm. a solution that that we can get all of the people that we need behind this that, mm -hmm. that we're not in favor of the other proposals. Mm -hmm. um, and so she's taking that opportunity. I think that's what a good leader needs to do, mm -hmm. right? A good mm -hmm. leader collaborates, finds the common ground, creates a solution that um, can can move things forward. Mm -hmm. and so while the money is going to take probably longer than everybody wants to build up, it, it's opening the door to that. That's uh, right. As an option. It's a good point. I like the way you, you phrase that because it is an opening and maybe just we should consider it just like that, not the be all end all, but just that's where we're at. And Tom, you know, I'm thinking about your back of your days with Senate Democrats in the legislature many years ago, but John Arthur Smith likes this idea. 
That was probably the most shocking bit about the article. Reading it over was like, I mean, no bones about it. He was like, okay, let's yeah. get after this thing. Senator John Arthur Smith, uh, who has been very protective of yep. the land grant permanent fund, mm -hmm. uh, really likes this particular idea. Well, he likes the idea. I don't know if he right. really likes the idea, but the he details likes it. are, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, the <laughs> governor come. has already expressed some support as well. So, you know, if uh, depending how this bill is crafted, and there, there are a lot of ifs. Right. Uh, you know, it, it could get a lot of traction and could get passed. But let me, but let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. It has the imprompter of John Arthur Smith. Isn't it just going to sail through now? I mean, it just, well, once, once old boy says it's okay, isn't well, it, you know? <laughs> well, uh, it could be, but right? what I would say is the devil's in the details, <laughs> okay. uh, to use that kind of cliche, because sure. it really depends where that funding is going to go. Yeah. Is it going to go above the line or is it going to go below the line? Uh, you know, below the line funding is, you know, things like capital outlay, teacher incentives, above the line is goes into the per pupil funding formula. And where that funding goes will really determine its fate, I think. Good point there, Serge. As an educator, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's always difficult to look at dollar amounts and say, oh, this is enough, this is not enough. That's a hard thing. You go through this at the university all day long. It's a hard thing to do. But again, your initial reaction, what's, what's your sense of it? Yeah, I mean, like Giovanni was saying, Giovanni was saying it's, it's a step in the right direction. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, what's the old saw? 50 million here, 50 million there. Right, right. Pretty soon we're talking about real money. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not nearly enough mm -hmm. to do what we need done in the state. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm encouraged by the... By the by, the idea and the the sort of support that it's been gathering. Mm -hmm. But as Tom was saying, the devil is in the details. And you know, early childhood education is—it's easy to say, yes, we support that. But then, what does that mean, right? Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. see the need for understanding how how that is paid out into who, you know, making sure that the workforce that we're talking right. about, the teachers, are paid well. That sure. that we're um, being sensitive to what that means in Albuquerque versus what it means in other parts of our state, right. being sensitive to whether, you know, how interested folks are in um, participating in those programs. And, That's right. you know, we have a lot of folks who qualify now for those sorts of programs that are not accessing it, whether that's mm -hmm. funding or a conscious choice mm -hmm. or um, the understandable lack of desire of folks maybe to be part of an industry that pays significantly less, That's right. right? People who do early childhood education are paid significantly less than our public school it's teachers. Been proven. That's right. And yep. so these are sorts of things that will need to be fleshed out, but to demonstrate a real commitment to not just, oh, here's a flashy dollar amount, but That's right. to understanding systemically, right? It's a systemic problem in New Mexico that requires yep. a real systemic solution and a real look at, at what that means to every, every person who participates in that. But I'm very much encouraged by it. I'm a big fan of mm -hmm. it. Crystal, interestingly, we can afford this 300 million right now. We're having good luck with oil and gas. Mm -hmm. But what happens if down the road, if those things start to shrink, and then the equivalent stuff we can um, stuff money we can peel off for this early childhood just starts to shrink as well, and suddenly it just doesn't look all, like all that much for three or four or five years? Is there a danger of that here? Because again, we're 300 million being taken off the table. Yeah. That's a lot of money, you know? It, it will be dangerous if the endowment or those that are, um, you know, uh, administering the endowment or even legislators at this point don't think of an, an efficient strategy to actually continue funding, uh, right. continue it as a funding source. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, the programs and the nonprofits or um, the vendors that would actually be supporting uh, or the entities that would be supporting this actual execution of an early childhood education, whatever it might be, the mm -hmm. department, mm -hmm. a program, et cetera. I thought it was really fascinating about how even just looking, where does the money actually go, mm -hmm. um, it would be obviously collaborating with CYFD, Department of Health, and Department of Education. 
But one thing that's really left out, and this is something that I'm feeling like I'm commonly saying again and again and again um, when I'm on the line, is um, we have to remember about the people. The people have to be as engaged as the government when that's it comes right. to the funding. That's right. I mean, um, sometimes you know we have families and parents that don't actually see the love for learning or the love for education. And so we can spend all these, this money or debate about how long we can have an endowment um, towards early childhood education, but we have to make mm-hmm. sure that the parent's willing to get the child in the venue in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I am, like, I, for example, I was speaking to a former s- secretary of CUFD, okay. and I asked her, I said, uh, uh, well, it's kind of obvious who it was, and mm-hmm. I said, you know, Sorry. so what do you think the problems are when it comes to family, you know, what, what's your next venture? And she goes, sometimes the problem's not actually the government entity, sometimes it's actually influencing in the home. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at the end of the day, we have to think about, is the money going to produce some type of ROI to- towards the child that will... Uh, benefit from the education. Gotcha. I like, that's interesting there, too. That perspective of that former secretary is interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Giovanna, interesting when you think about there's another idea floating out there, and that is the, an, an actual department for early childhood education. And it seems like if, you, if we step back from all this and look at it, like a lot of roads are starting to meet at once here about early childhood education. There's money potentially coming. There's a department potentially coming. There's a department head. Potentially, you know what I mean? And really getting a solid look at early childhood. Yeah. Again, this, does that feel like momentum to you? Is this the way we should be going? And, I mean, yeah. And mm-hmm. so when we talk about early childhood, there's a whole lot going on there, right? right. So, it's a big old bucket. So exactly. There's mm-hmm. zero to five, which we know when we, when we get kids zero to five, their brains develop better and all kinds of great things happen. And then there's the other sort of five to eight-year-olds that need actual education. Right. But I feel like the zero to five is <clears throat> a little bit of a different story. It's more child care and learning, but, you know, child care. P- parents need child care. Mm-hmm. So I think it's worth looking at <clears throat> the early childhood ecosystem in New Mexico as a whole in context, in the context of economic development and workforce development. Because when we see, when we look at, you know, what are we really talking about? Babies, zero to five. We're talking about babies and toddlers, really, you know. We're not saying, like, we're not really talking about learning to read as much as as the play-based childcare stuff that we really need with the zero to five. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we look at that need, we're, we're really saying, you know, what do parents need? And so to Crystal, Crystal's point, mm-hmm. um, the parents need to be involved. And a lot of parents don't have access to high quality childcare. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, it, it is, it is a, something to look at as far as what the parents need. But it's also a, a case of, um, like I said, the context of workforce development, um, economic development, workplaces so our workplaces you know offering solutions as well Mm -hmm. to support um parents with what they need we're finally having that conversation aren't we there's a lot of folks having a a more vigorous conversation about just what you're saying yeah i think we are but Mm -hmm. it's i think it's not um a cohesive conversation right but i'm encouraged with with what's happening and um the kind of the longer term planning Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. that is happening let me get Finish with Tom here, about 60 seconds left. By the way, I should uh, just a sharpen a quick point I just made there. That department is happening, that early childhood education. It's not an idea. It's, it's coming. Um, what's interesting about this is the, the, this fund wouldn't need a constitutional amendment, uh, Tom. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. And what, what the potential danger you could see here is once people get behind closed doors and start trying to figure out <laughs> which direction this money is going to go, because it's not as restrictive as the permanent fund stuff. Is it, any danger there? Is there a possibility we could... Uh, 
have a little hiccup the, down the road there once the money starts yeah, getting hiccup out. fit, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of potential for, I mean, you know, just because you have a department identified, just because you have a cabinet secretary, you need the strategic direction. Right. And I think, you know, really identifying how to use the funding, uh, you know, before you have that strategic direction, mm -hmm. uh, it sets it up for failure. There's right. also Please. a really important point about wh who is going to get the funding, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so publicly yeah. funded right. um, child care and education centers only or community-based as well. And that has been a really big discussion with the land-grant permanent fund right. conversation and now will be a conversation <clears throat> here as well. And we have such a delicate system and infrastructure here for early childhood that if you start... Um, uh, playing with pieces and not the whole thing, it can really damage it like we've seen in other states. That's mm -hmm. actually happened and we need to learn from what other states have done That's and right. what, what's happened. In We're brand states. new. That's right. Really shallow stuff. Have to hit the pause button there, but I can guarantee you we'll pick up the conversation in the coming months. Up next, we investigate the blue-green algae blooms that closed a pair of popular New Mexico lakes this summer. The theater becomes a powerful tool to put your story up there and to make up for the gaps in the American education system. You may have heard two New Mexico lakes were closed late this summer because of blue-green algae blooms, which can make people and pets sick. It's finally cooler outside, and as summer swim season wraps up, we wanted to understand more about the risks from exposure to the blooms and why this is happening for the first time in some of New Mexico's lakes. In this month's episode of Our Land, correspondent Laura Pascas travels to Abiquiu and Cochiti to find out more. On August 13th, as the high temperature in Albuquerque climbed above normal to 94 degrees, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers closed Abiquiu Lake to swimming and other recreational activities. Nine days later, it closed Cochiti Lake. Cyanobacteria, or well, we know them as blue-green algae. Technically, they're not algae. They're actually a bacteria that can photosynthesize, so they can harvest light from the sun, like plants and um, trees and grasses and shrubs. Um, they live in the water. Generally, they're microscopic, so you can have 50 of them on the head of a pin. And they're naturally in lakes and rivers and streams and ponds as part of the green part of the food web. So check it out. Uh, all of this is this uh, cyanobacteria that's blooming. Becky Bixby is a professor at the University of New Mexico's biology department. She's also associate director of the water resources program and she studies algae for a living. Low water levels, high temperatures, and long sunny days, of which New Mexico has had plenty of this year, all help trigger these blooms. Runoff from farm fields and ranch lands and upstream pollution are factors, too. A combination of these can cause certain species of cyanobacteria to grow and quickly multiply. Their cells form these blooms in slow-moving waters, like lakes and ponds, and then the blooms can create toxins. John Mueller is the operations project manager at Abiquiu Lake, which is on the Chama River. Most algaes are uh, not harmful, but what we're seeing up here and what we have tested with higher toxicity levels is a lime green uh, kind of like pea soup color. If you see that type of uh, formation or film on the water, avoid it. 
avoid contact with it. Uh, don't let your pets swim in it. Uh, keep your kids out of it. And, and come tell park rangers so we can kind of uh, um, get an understanding of if this is a new area and if what we need to key into. But the biggest thing is just if you see that, stay out of the water. Touching the algae can leave rashes or blisters on your skin. Swallowing it can cause stomach problems. Breathing droplets, like when water skiing or swimming, can also lead to hay fever-like symptoms. And the toxins can even cause liver or neurological problems. And for dogs who gulp lots of water when they swim or lick the algae off their coats, exposure can be fatal. Not only that, when the blooms die off and decay, they use up the oxygen in the water, sometimes triggering fish kills. Mueller and state health officials say they haven't heard reports from people who've gotten sick. And Mueller says they're monitoring the water in the lake and below the dam, where there aren't any signs of the algae. We do not want to negatively affect people coming up and recreating and enjoying the resource. So we're trying to strike the balance of a good response plan, outreach program to educate the public, but also, if necessary, uh, partial closures. We don't want to do a full closure because that does have an impact. But our main goal and focus is to keep our visitors as healthy as possible. Above Abiquiu Lake, water in the Chama River is nutrient-rich with high levels of nitrogen and phosphorus. Because the river moves relatively fast, the blooms aren't a problem there, but that water ends up in the lake. Christopher Barrios is with the New Mexico Environment Department, which regulates pollution and these high nutrient levels. It can come from point sources like wastewater treatment plants. Uh, also a large portion comes from uh, runoff from uh, storm events, uh, agriculture runoff from grazeland and, and irrigation water. It's not realistic to kill off the bacteria in lakes and reservoirs, especially not across such big areas, and the treatments themselves could kill fish and harm the ecosystem. Instead, the goal is to reduce the nutrients getting into the river. That includes working with the ag and livestock communities to stop so much nitrogen and phosphorus, from fertilizers and waste, from getting into streams and rivers in the first place. These blooms are a problem in the Midwest, in the South, even sometimes in Southern New Mexico. But what we're seeing at Cochiti and Abiquiu this year is new. As the climate warms and lakes and reservoirs keep dropping, we're going to see more of these blooms in New Mexico. That means facing the challenges isn't just about closing lakes here and there or getting through this summer. The blooms are pointing us toward bigger issues in our state when it comes to water supplies, rising temperatures, and water management. In some ways, it's interesting because it brings a lot of people with different interests together, a lot of stakeholders together. Um, people who are managing the reservoirs, people who are managing drinking water, people who are interested in the health. Um, and so pulling these people together to solve this problem is, is really exciting. In a state with a lot of reservoirs, and we're dependent on those reservoirs for various things. Even up in northern New Mexico, with its relatively cool summers, this won't be the last time New Mexicans see these blooms and lakes. So, Bixby says, it's important to continue monitoring the water and collecting data on the blooms and why they're happening. She also says it's important that all the agencies and stakeholders stay at the table to think about a statewide plan so we know how to respond to blooms and especially stop them before they happen. For New Mexico in Focus and Our Land, I'm Laura Paskus.
Imagine if school books just cut out any mention of an African-American person after 1900 or a white person after, I mean, name it, right? Like, that would be outrageous, but why are we cut out? New Mexico wants its electricity providers to be 100% reliant on carbon-free electricity by 2045. That goal is not only endorsed by the state's largest power, power company, PM. Says it can likely beat it by five years, in fact. It signed off on the plan as part of a whopper of a bill called the Energy Transition Act. A recent article by Jens Eric Gould of the Santa Fe, New Mexican, details the effort to pass the law, which also gives PM a way to recoup its costs when it closes the coal-fired San Juan generating station in 2022. Now, instead of forcing the company and its shareholders to bear the cost, customers will pay for it through a charge on their PM bill. And Tom, the law means PM covers not just costs of closing a plant that says it wouldn't be profitable anyway, but $290 million of stranded investment that sidesteps going before regulators who could have decided to allow a smaller amount. It's a masterstroke by PM here. I mean, when you really step back and look at it, it kind of worked out pretty well for them, but what? How, how did how did you s sense it when you saw this decision? Yeah, so the ETA, and by means of disclosure, we do work in the renewable energy industry. Uh, I did not have anything to do with the ETA uh, legislation. But when that. you look at the ETA, it's really it's very understandable in three areas. Okay, you have clean coal and rules. Okay, so the clean, the clean energy, it's a mandate mm -hmm. for by 2045 that all utilities will be able to provide clean energy, meaning uh, those that provide um, uh, not coal. Mm -hmm. uh, and so so that's one aspect. The other aspect is, is it provides those monies that you were talking about, uh, certain bonds mm -hmm. for P&M uh, to basically close down their, their participation in the uh, coal plant up in the Four Corners area. Mm -hmm. And then you hit the roll, which is what you're talking about, about the rate payers with right. the PRC. Right. And the PRC and one of uh, PNM's great nemesises in the new energy economy mm -hmm. are really upset because they don't get a chance to have a say because the ETA basically bypasses the PRC right. in setting up their own sweet deal with PNM. That's right. So is it a good deal for PNM? Uh, it would appear so. They seem to be in favor of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that it's uh, it's probably a good deal for ratepayers, although that's where the new energy economy is coming in. Right. And they're saying that, no, 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 au contraire. Right. We don't want the ratepayers to take care of it. That's it right. should be the shareholders. That's right. And so that's where all this confusion is. That's right. That's the, the great cleave right there, that right between them. Crystal, what was your read on this for, with PNM as well? Um, so in terms, so not only the fight between the PRC and the PNM, mm -hmm. you know, it's a very obvious tactic that they're using, um, you know, the, bringing it to the fight to the Supreme Court to, to continually block. And they're using every last opportunity to see, um, you know, those that are, in, are not in support of the ETA. They're using every last opportunity to block the legislation. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's really interesting, though, about this fight to stop to not stop using coal is the cultural significance mm -hmm. that's behind it. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we talk about, you know, uh, our team had uh, identified the article, the Navajo Nation doubling down on coal mm -hmm. um, and seeing that fight between, you know, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, an old school Navajo mindset and a new school Navajo mindset where the, the new school Navajo mindset saying, you know, we have to take care of Mother Earth. You know, this is obviously hurting our people because of the pollutants that are going into the air mm -hmm. and we can't disrespect Mother Earth earth no longer and this is you know the this is the right thing to do to support ETA and the closure of the plant but you know they say or, or studies have shown that you know the dollars of closing closing the San Juan plant is greatly affecting the economy in the Navajo Nation right. even with PNM putting um, information or or, or 
um, deals and packages in, in their actual close, closing plan mm -hmm. where there's going to be economic development funding for the San Juan region. Mm -hmm. The Navajo people don't see it that way because they're, they're, you're genuinely changing the course of how they normally do things. That's right. Um, and now it just presents an interesting challenge besides not only supporting coal, you know, supporting the, the, the stop to using coal, mm -hmm. um, but the Navajo Nation has to think about new economic development strategies to support their communities. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that change is scary. But if if um, if Pueblos like um, Laguna um, can come up with innovative economic development strategies, mm -hmm. I think as long as there's a plan in place for the Navajo Nation to think about economic development, mm -hmm. I think the ease of, of transitioning out of coal would be um, less um, stress-driven right. for that community. Glad you got that out there. Yeah. That's actually an important point. Mm -hmm. You know, Serge, interesting, I want a little nuance that Tom uh, kind of brushed when he did his bit there. This does not mandate renewables. Nuclear could still be out mm -hmm. there. Do, do you know what I mean? It's, right. it's a tricky, kind of a weird thing that folks have uh, can environmentalists and, and everybody else kind of come to an agreement on this, unless it's renewables? Because if they want to do something else, it's going to be a fight, it seems to me. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it, this could be a fight in the making, but I think folks mm -hmm. have definitely been supportive of this idea of, let's go to zero carbon, right? right. It's one of the most forward-looking, progressive um, approaches mm -hmm. in the country. And mm -hmm. um, the you know even the the critics to this have not been it's not been on that point, right? It's right, been about right. sort of who's paying for all this That's and right. whatnot. That's right. And we, you know, we can once again come back to the devil being in the details, mm -hmm. but it's also, it's a really great symbolic um, movement here. We're saying like, you know, this is a commitment that we have to non-carbon energy mm -hmm. in New Mexico, of all places, right? That's right. To, to say that. I, I think it's huge and I think it, it it says a lot about what we want to be as a state and, mm -hmm. and how we are you know, trying to be forward thinking and going forward. Um, the, the amount of nuclear energy, right, as I understand it, we already have a substantial amount of that going on now mm -hmm. uh, that has been possibly more controversial than I know, but I haven't noticed a lot of it. Right. Uh, I, of course, it will ramp up. There are those advocates out there, right. you know what I mean, that love nuclear, the whole thing, so it's... it's but I think it'd be, a, mm -hmm. it'd, be a, it'd be a mistake to say, you know, let's, let's uh, demonize this whole thing because it doesn't 100% say we won't use nuclear or whatever. This right. is a great right. uh, a, um, statement of values and principles of, that's a good way to in it. terms of energy. Absolutely. You know, Giovanna, uh, something comes to mind about the PRC. I'm going to swing back to those guys for a second. They could have, instead of giving PM 100%, there's a lot of percentages underneath that. It could have been a 50 50 split, 75 25. See what I mean? It's it just 100% is like a, it's a win. It's incredible you know, when you think about how these folks are going to be able to deal with their costs now. Is that an idea that would have flown, perhaps, just kind of splitting the difference between these entities? I mean, the, yeah, I, I don't know what mm. was all involved in that negotiation. I do mm -hmm. know that P&M has uh, protected its interests, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> as, mm -hmm. any, as any player at the table would. Sure. Yep. I think to no, uh, no argument there. another point that was made earlier, I think mm -hmm. the Navajo Nation and the, um, the communities there uh, may not have had the same access to that table to mm -hmm. negotiate to protect their interests. Mm -hmm. So I mm -hmm. think, again, in any transition, mm -hmm. um, and, and to your point, you know, this is this is great news, like mm -hmm. glass half full or half empty. Like we are going to have 100% um, of, of power from carbon emission free sources by 2045 or mm -hmm. 2040. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, ultimately like that's awesome. That's right. 
and yep. <laughs> and how is that going to happen for all of the players at the table? Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I had Pat Vincent Klon on my show last year, mm -hmm. and I, I interviewed her, the um, CEO of P and M, and she she talked about this and how. Don't the folks know the name of your show, by the way. Oh yeah, the Well Woman Show. Yeah, <laughs> where can they hear it? Um, it's on KUNM 89.9 FM. It's on NPR One on the podcast oh, wonderful. app as Good well. Oh, wonderful! Congratulations. Anywhere you listen to podcasts. Okay. Um, but yeah, I interview women leaders uh, about what you know, what how they do, what they do in the world. Mm -hmm. And Pat was um, was really clearly excited ab about doing this mm -hmm. and. Um, and, and really showing showing the leadership needed to to make that deal mm -hmm. happen, mm -hmm. but again, you know, they have a lot of uh, power and a lot of uh, highly paid people right. to advocate for That's their right. need That's for right. their interests. Yep. And um, and I am interested in the envi environmental groups that are um, some are supporting the deal, right? Sierra Club. Mm -hmm. He's on board with PNM, and mm -hmm. so they're clearly trying to, you know, move things forward. Yeah. Which I don't uh, think that the, you know, when you look at new energy economy, I, even though I, I don't speak for them, they speak for themselves. But yeah. when they are probably, they love the idea of what the, you know, the clean right. energy. They just don't like the idea of the PRC not having a role yeah. and having their yeah, absolutely. They have a That's whole well campaign said. called yeah. Transition Justice Campaign, and mm -hmm. they, it's got very effective, um, highly regarded people on that campaign staff mm -hmm. that are mm -hmm. really concerned about that. That's I right. would have to respectfully disagree though that PNM didn't put the right people at the table, especially the Navajo Nation. Like not only I didn't say they did they didn't put the yeah, right yeah. people. I, I don't not all the people yeah. have been at the table. That's the part that I might in the conversation. Yeah. I might have to disagree with that one because they were very, very vocal people, like not only protesting um, up in Santa Fe with the PRC, et cetera. But the Navajo, the Navajo Nation is so powerful on its own that there is no way that they weren't in those critical discussions. I think it just goes back to cultural change. It's mm -hmm. so difficult to, mm -hmm. to change a culture that they're so used to their habits and ways. Um, so that's something that business and commerce sometimes doesn't take into consideration. Well, what was, well, what and was this is very similar to Walker Air Force Base closing <laughs> in Roswell. Oh, okay. okay. When you look at uh, yeah. uh, the San Juan generating station really changing and, and dropping out, mm -hmm. it's very similar to what the circumstances were that Roswell faced. And so yeah. it's an opportunity for the farming of Four Corners community to jump in right. and decide what their economic future mm -hmm. is. That's right. Good point there. And Giovanni, when we talk about Navajo Nation, we're not talking about one voice, right? We're talking like it was very clear in some of the articles that we read preparing for this, mm -hmm. the Navajo Nation government is very different in terms of decision making from the Navajo mm -hmm. um, energy company. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, so I think in terms of missing from the table or missing from some of the discussion mm -hmm. and ways that this could be even better is, you know, this does, the, the securitization of, of this will result in, in some cost being passed on to ratepayers. Um, other states that have done this, and I think we could do better at this, uh, finding more sources of money for low-income ratepayers, mm -hmm. right? folks who are going to be especially, who might be especially hard hit right. mm -hmm. from this, and and you know that's win-win as far as I'm concerned. That's a good final thought there. It gets interesting because that kind of broadens it out in an interesting way. There, we'll be back with this group in a few minutes to talk about military construction projects at projects at New Mexico bases that are now on hold while the president builds a border wall. These ranchers, um, Trump supporters, I will say, mm -hmm. um, started talking negatively about the military. 
like, oh, the military has what they need. This is right. just uh, pork barrel money that we could use for the... So it just seems wow. like their own messaging is getting really um, turned around and is not helping them. A Native American playwright wants to showcase accurate representations of indigenous people through theater. Mary Catherine Nagel, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, sets the stage to educate and highlight Native American issues in her latest work. The Lenzik Performing Arts Center played host last week to a stage reading of her play, Sovereignty. The play is set in both the 1800s and in modern times to tell the story behind a landmark jurisdiction case won by the Cherokee Nation before the U.S. Supreme Court. Nagel's also an accomplished attorney, and as New Mexico in Focus correspondent Antonia Gonzalez shares with us, she uses her skills as an advocate and writer in her celebrated works of art. Mary Catherine, welcome to New Mexico PBS. Thank you, it's great to be here. You've um, written a number of plays about American Indians and law. You're an attorney, so tell us a little bit about the difference or the connection between storytelling, whether it's in the courtroom or um, on stage. Absolutely. So. I think a lot of people think of it as separate. I really see it as one and the same. To be a good lawyer, you have to be a good storyteller, no matter whether you're writing a brief to the Supreme Court or whether you're in front of a jury. The law is made up of a bunch of factual narratives that we tell ourselves. And sometimes those factual narratives are based on the truth. Sometimes they're based on prejudice. For instance, think about the 1978 Supreme Court case in Oliphant, which is the case where the Supreme Court said that tribal nations can no longer exercise criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians. In that case, Chief Justice Rehnquist said that the phenomenon of tribal courts exercising jurisdiction over non-Indians is a relatively new phenomenon um, and, and went on to make other arguments and factual assessments that I think are based in prejudice and ignorance about the fact that tribal courts have been and tribal nations have been exercising jurisdiction over anyone who comes onto their lands for, you know, since time immemorial, right? That didn't change in 1492, that didn't change in 1776. Well, as a lawyer, I can write briefs about that, and I have, but imagine the power of being able to write a play where I actually show how in 1825, my great-great-great-great-grandfather as the speaker of our Cherokee Nation Tribal Council actually signed into law a law that the, res uh, the Tribal Council passed where Cherokee Nation criminalized the rape of a woman on Cherokee lands regardless of race or citizenship. So you could be a citizen of France, you could be any race, you could be a citizen of England, the state of Georgia, Cherokee Nation, Choctaw Nation, you name it. If you came onto Cherokee lands and raped someone, you would be prosecuted by Cherokee Nation. That does not, that, that calls into question the Supreme Court's decision in 1978, right? But it's, it's harder to do that in a, in a broad way if all you're doing is writing briefs to a court. I think the arts and theater have, the potential to deconstruct some of the harmful narratives that make up our legal framework in the United States. And so as a playwright and as an attorney, I'm very excited to tackle both. In your play, Sovereignty, it addresses violence against women and the MMIW movement here in the United States has picked up traction in recent years. Can you talk a little bit about why this topic is close to you? It is a sensitive topic for many tribes across the country. It's a sensitive topic, I think, you know, we would all be hard-pressed to find a family in a tribal community that hasn't been impacted by either of these crises, whether it's domestic violence, sexual assault, or MMIW, and, and my family is no different. 
Also, in 1832, my great-great-great-grandfather, John Ridge, actually worked as an attorney. He couldn't argue in the Supreme Court, because back then Indians weren't allowed to argue in federal courts, uh, but he certainly assisted in drafting the legal papers, and he was a lawyer, worked on that case where the whole issue in Worcester v. Georgia in 1832 was who has criminal jurisdiction over non-Indian American citizens on tribal lands. Georgia said, we do, to the exclusion of Cherokee Nation. Cherokee Nation said, we do, to the exclusion of Georgia. And the Supreme Court says, Cherokee Nation does, to the exclusion of the state. It was a huge victory. and so. As a lawyer, I'm trying to, in my mind, figure out how we got from Wooster in 1832 that my grandfather's worked on to Oliphant in 1978. And I feel it's a part of my life's mission and life work to get us back to Wooster and to overturn Oliphant, whether it's through the Supreme Court, through Congress, through whatever means necessary. And so VAWA is a huge part of that, you know, and the fact that we have the highest rates of violence, the highest rates of murder of any population in the United States. It's, it's a critical issue, and I think, again, like most of our issues that we face in Indian country, it's an issue that most non-natives don't fully understand, and I think that a play is a, is a very powerful vehicle for kind of bringing that, them into that important conversation. Some of the audiences that you present these plays to may or may not have any knowledge of whether it's Native American history or even current issues of today. So explain a little bit about how you see your work as an educational tool. Absolutely. It's surprising. I think oftentimes um, we forget that most Americans don't understand, you know, anything broadly about history affecting Native Americans but or specifically about our tribes and you know, people talk about the Cherokee Trail of Tears but there's so little they actually know about it. Uh, they don't know anything about the Treaty of New Echota. They don't understand why it was signed. They certainly, I, I was very surprised after we did my play Sovereignty at Arena Stage in Washington DC to stand in the lobby outside afterwards and thankfully as the playwright you're not on stage so people usually don't recognize you. And so I could kind of stand there incognito and listen candidly to people's conversations. I heard a lot of people say, huh, I, I had no idea Andrew Jackson refused to enforce a Supreme Court decision. But that happened. And that's a pretty significant point in American history, Cherokee Nation history, but also American history. And so what we're doing, and I, I say we as playwrights, um, especially a lot of playwrights of color or any group that, who's been silenced in American history, I think, that theater becomes a powerful tool to put your story up there and to make up for the gaps in the American education system. You know, I've, I've actually been very fortunate to partner with Crystal Echohawk and her work on Illuminative, and the research they did showed that 87% you know, of school curricula, K through 12, do not mention a single Native person after 1900. That's crazy. I mean, imagine if school books just cut out any mention of an African-American person after 1900 or a white person after, I mean, name it, right? Like, that would be outrageous, but why are we cut out when we were also here on this soil first? So, again, theater, I, I really believe in it as a powerful tool, especially because you have the power of proximity, of someone being in the room with the actors live on stage. So they might be learning about a moment in history, but they're not just watching it on the History Channel or in a movie theater. They're experiencing it in a very real, personal way because it's right in front of them. And, and it, it creates a pathway to introduce educational moments that I think are left out in the American school system in a way that isn't quite as abrasive as a lecture or you know, another way of, of giving information.
So then are your audiences, um, are you writing for natives or non-natives or both? Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, that's a great question and I've, I've talked to some other really great native playwrights like Vera Bedard from Alaska, Larissa Fasthorse, um, you know, Vicki Ramirez, Randy Reinholtz. I think we all struggle with, with this question um, and we all kind of answer it differently. And I think that's really great too about different native playwrights have, but it is a question, right? Because there's always this moment, and it happens in every play of mine, where usually if I'm working with a non-native theater company, that's great. That means that the majority of the people in the audience are not gonna be native. That means I'll be reaching people who probably don't know this history and need to know it. But at the same time, there's all these things that, you know, in, in a Cherokee home or in a Cherokee community, people would just say, and, and they automatically know what you're talking about. And it might be things as simple as like BIA. And you know, someone will say to me, well, we, we, you can't just say BIA here. You have to explain what the, what the BIA is. It's like, well, no, you know, two characters sitting at the dinner table aren't going to go into a lecture about the BIA. And, and at the end of the day, if you change your play too much to make it to, to basically what I call apologize for the ignorance of the audience member, then you start to write characters that aren't real and they aren't talking the way they would just normally talk. And, and, and although that might not be obviously a problem, over time it makes the characters less authentic in a way. And, um, and I do think there is a privilege, so to speak, that white male playwrights have and that they're, because their culture is the dominant culture, they don't have to explain anything, right? They can reference all their white heroes and everyone knows who that is. If, I, if one of my native characters wants to say something like, that's just like, that makes me think of Chief Standing Bear, I'm probably gonna have to explain who Chief Standing Bear was and what he did, right? You wouldn't have to do that with a white hero. And so it is, I think, a disadvantage that native playwrights have, and, but at the same time, I think, because we have to work harder to not lose the audience, we don't want to lose the non-native audience, we don't want them to say, I don't know what the characters are talking about right now. A boarding school, you know, she, you know, like what's that? Like there's a lot they don't know and you have to find a way to explain it. But that challenge when you, I think, work to meet it, the ultimate result is a more powerful play. Because I think there's also something that happens when people walk out of the theater and they say, not only was that a powerful story, but that's a piece of American history that I didn't know about and they feel almost like I need to see more of this, right? What else do I not know? And they start to become hungry for more. And I think that is, again, the power of theater. And right now we're in an age where there's organizations, groups, individuals who are working and calling for more accurate representation of Native American indigenous people, whether it's in news stories or in film and television, mm -hmm. um, in sports. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about your movement in theater with Instead of Red Face. Yes, well, I, um, <laughs> I started that hashtag for a series we did on HowlRound, which is like a theater blog, basically. And so a group of us, I got to curate a series of Native writers, Larissa Fasthorse, uh, who is a playwright, Madeline Sayet's a director, Randy Reinholtz is a director and artistic director of um, Native Voices at the Autry, Ty Defoe, a, a lot of really amazing Native theater artists and every day we had a different blog post. And, and in thinking about what to title that series, I really thought about it because at that point I was living in Manhattan in New York. I was working as a lawyer but also as a playwright. 
and I was trying to get some of my plays produced at theaters in New York. I still haven't gotten one of my plays professionally produced at a theater in New York by a non-native theater company. And it, it's great to get produced by native theater companies, but we shouldn't just get produced in native theater companies. We should get produced in you know mainstream professional companies as well. And and so I was meeting all this resistance, and I would oftentimes then go to that theater that was had never produced a single native playwright and was refusing to produce my play or another play by another native playwright. And I'd see a performance of Red Face there, and it really disturbed me. It's it, you know. It's one thing to just not ever produce a native playwright, but if you're going to put inauthentic misrepresentations of native people on stage, how can you justify continuing to exclude us from that stage? And it was rather maddening. And so I just wanted to call attention to that. I thought it was very problematic. And so we started using, and, and the other thing that would happen is I'd get engaged in these conversations with theaters, especially in New York, and they said, well, look, I would love to produce a native playwright. I don't know any. And, and, and I said, you don't know any. I can name 20 right now. And they said, well, where's the list? Like, where do I go? And I didn't have enough money at the time and, or resources to create my own website. And, and that could be problematic in and of itself because I didn't want to make myself a gatekeeper for who would get to be listed on the website. But I thought, if we have a hashtag and if we encourage all Native theater artists, anytime you have a play, a reading, anything, like write about it on social media and use that hashtag. And then if someone says to me, well, I don't know any native actors. I'd say, go look at hashtag instead of redface. You'll see all the posts, right? And so the idea is, do authentic native artists produce their work instead of redface? It's an alternative. And are you seeing any changes in the theater world? You no, know, I am, and that's what's so exciting. And so, ten years ago, we weren't getting produced. We, the, you could maybe it was one or two native playwrights that had ever had a single production at a mainstream professional theater you know, in the, in the United States. In the last couple years, I mean, it's, 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 it's gone from like, I mean, it's exponential, the growth. And so suddenly, we're popping up everywhere. And Brandy Reinholtz was the first native playwright to get produced at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which is a very prestigious theater that sends plays to Broadway regularly and has Pulitzer Prize winning plays. Um, Larissa Fast Horse has been produced by theaters all across the country, including Kansas City Rep and um, theaters in New York and Portland and Delena Studi was the first native playwright to get produced at Portland Center Stage, Arena Stage produced my play. Uh, we're just we're seeing all kinds of theaters produce for the first time their first native playwright, which I think is very remarkable. And this has all been within the last five years. And for you, some of these issues that we're talking about uh, currently, including sovereignty and um, treaty trust responsibilities, do you think that the general public understands the relevance of those today? I think they don't. And I think that's something we really need to think about. I think we as natives understand the relevance of treaties and their importance. But as uh, my mentor, Suzanne Harjo, always says, if you don't know treaties, you don't know American history. Because the United States, I mean, one of the first things that General Washington did when they won the war was sign a treaty with the Delaware Nation. And then very quickly, it was several other tribal nations, including my nation, Cherokee Nation, Creek Nation, other nations. Because at that time, the whole world was signing treaties with Indian nations, France, Spain, England. No one was signing treaties to the United States. They didn't exist. And so they were this new country that had to establish their legitimacy and their sovereignty. And the quickest and fastest way to do it was to sign treaties with the other nations 
that you know in the international community already had a sovereign nation status. And so the United States did that. So they essentially used our sovereignty to establish their sovereignty. And now, in some ways, would like to discard it, right, and just disregard some of those treaty obligations they have. But I'm very thankful to see folks like, you know, Congresswoman Deb Holland in Congress standing up. She's talking about this. Tom Cole, I think, you know, now we've got presidential candidates, you know, talking about this treaty and trust obligation. So I think that's starting to come back around. But it was really interesting, you know, my place, Sovereignty, there's the, the, the Treaty of Nui Chota is signed on stage. There is a scene in the play where they sign that treaty. A lot of the play is about that treaty. And it's been interesting, especially with non-native audiences, to talk to them about what they thought a treaty was before and after the play. Well, we thank you so much for being here today and yeah. good luck. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It looks as though President Trump may indeed build that wall, or at least part of it. The president announced he'll repurpose $3.6 billion using emergency powers. Both the wall and its funding, which by the way is not from Mexico, are controversial. Congress designated the money for military construction projects and two projects here in New Mexico will have to wait because of the border wall funding. An $85 million drone pilot training facility at Holloman Air Force Base in Alamogordo, and a $40 million data and networking center at White Sands Missile Range. And Serge, this is something our Focus on New Mexico Facebook group wanted to hear about this week. Interesting, what's, what's the big takeaway for you on this? Is it the wall, is it the, the, the projects themselves, or something else, what, what's your sense of it? I, I mean, my biggest takeaway is that this is just this relentless commitment to this, you know, um, symbolic physical showpiece is, mm -hmm. I mean, no surprise, but it has sort of taken on such a life of its own that it now is no longer rational and we're actually cutting into our own military preparedness. Mm. Um, you know, some schools were, that were being built were on that list. It is, uh, there's no, in my mind, no conception of political intelligence or, or national um, interests that would lead to this beyond just sort of a, monofocus on this one thing to the exclusion of all others that, mm. I mean, I'm not saying anything new here, sure. is, is not, I think, practical, not useful, not helpful, and not wanted, right. generally. Let me go on the not wanted bit. Good point there, Crystal. The uh, quotes from our Congress, congressional delegation have been pretty sharp. Mm -hmm. um, Mine must be pretty sharp here, too. Yeah, so. there you go. <laughs> Senator Udall, it's an outrageous and reckless action by the president and his administration. Congress did not appropriate this money for the president's vanity project. And it kind of goes on from there. It's kind of a long thing. But the essence of it, that Congress does appropriate money. You know what I mean? For certain projects, Absolutely. it's a discussion. It's mm -hmm. a, a fight. It's mm -hmm. a lot of things. And so to come right in afterwards and just take all this money, mm -hmm. it's pretty galling for these senators and Congress people. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, you know, looking at the $85 million on the UAV training mm -hmm. at Holloman and the $40 million specifically for the information systems, mm -hmm. like Trump supporters now genuinely have to ask themselves if whether or not the propaganda or, you know, through the propaganda and the rhetoric, mm -hmm. like what's now really a priority to their safety and security in America? Is it keeping our military operations as one of the strongest militaries in the world? Right. Or is it building a wall in Mexico? So when, when voters come, you know, next year in terms of whether or not Trump should be that, that's a strong question. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, those are two values.
values that you have to take into consideration and, and prepare for. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's really dangerous about this is that if now that we're starting to pull funding from bases, mm -hmm. there could be a trickle-down effect where um, Trump could possibly um, pull funding from our labs. And if they start to pull money from the labs, it could be catastrophic, especially with the amount of people um, that work at Sandia and obviously in Los sure, Alamos. Sure. So this is, um, you know, especially with New Mexico being the second highest ratio of federal funding, um, federal funds to income taxes paid, mm -hmm. uh, according to Smart Asset, like it, it could be uh, very much detrimental. Mm -hmm. This does impact the communities of Clovis and then obviously the, or excuse me, um, Alamogordo and mm -hmm. then obviously um, um, in that area. But mm -hmm. um, we'll see what other things he's got up his sleeve yeah. or on his Twitter account. Interesting. Uh, Senator Heinrich Tom said the, mm -hmm. the building is falling apart, talking about the UA uh, visa facility Crystal was just mentioning. The building is falling apart with some equipment being held together with duct tape. I mean, come on, you're taking money out of those kind of things. No wonder the man's upset. So again, the, the big takeaway here, do we gain something as we're losing something? Yeah. We're losing something. Okay. Uh, you know, these, these military projects, uh, they, you, it's not like a city project. It's not like going out to Home Depot and getting something. Right. It is a five to 10 year process. Thank you. And to have the funding taken away base is, is very similar to basically running the 195 yards to the five yard line and then all of a sudden having the game end <laughs> when there's still time on the clock. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's very frustrating for our bases and it could, could. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, come into play if the Base Realignment Commission comes back into conversation. It's, it hasn't, yes. but you know, what we want to do is build up our assets and these types of uh, funding shenanigans mm -hmm. do not help to build the assets. You know, it's interesting, uh, this Democrats are galvanizing around this, it's easy to see, but we do also have Republicans sort of waking up and saying, wait a minute, that's in my district too, hang on. Mitch McConnell famously yeah. is fighting to keep some funding from going out of his state yeah. for the border wall. What's this gonna do for Democrats? Is this a, a, a rallying cry here? Well, it one? should be. Yeah. I mean, come on, <laughs> <laughs> it's mm -hmm. just incredible that we're at the place that we are and that more people aren't up in arms about this, literally. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think, I think the Democrats can definitely use this. It is worth noting the Republicans that have come forward, you know, and, and Mitt Romney and other Republicans have said, you know, this undermines military efforts, right. this was, the proper authority was not used. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, and then also um, reading some of the articles, the people that uh, reporters found to make comments on this, Trump supporters living near the border, uh, apparently they couldn't find any in New Mexico, but they mm -hmm. did go to Arizona and find some. And these ranchers, uh, Trump supporters, I will say, mm -hmm. um, started talking negatively about the military. Like, oh, the military has what they need. Th this is right. just uh, pork barrel money that we could use for the... So it just seems wow. like their own messaging is getting really um, turned around and is not helping them. Mm -hmm. But this has never stopped. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mr. T, I'll call him, um, from getting, you know, pursuing sure. what he wants to do. And sure. so the question of how did we get to this place? How did we get to the point where he was able to declare this situation an emergency mm -hmm. and, and do this? Um, mm -hmm. We really have to hold, hold people accountable for That's a good point. how they let this through. That's right. And it has to be put on the table, of course, the president's coming to Rio Rancho on Monday. And Tom, I'm curious if, uh, how does he like deal this, with this from the podium? You know what I mean? That, <laughs> he's now gonna be talking in a border state right. about this border wall issue. 
I'm just really curious if his tone is going to change, if he's going to try to pitch it, try to sell it to New Mexicans as some kind of thing. It's very interesting. No, I mean, well, he's, talk, he's not talking in downtown Albuquerque. He's right. not speaking yeah. in Las Cruces. He's speaking in very Republican-friendly right. Rio Rancho. That's right. And so he's playing to the home team. Right. Uh, as far as what he will say, I would imagine that uh, if the past is a, any indication, he'll, he'll wing it. Mm-hmm. And he'll just, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, and he'll say what he's been saying. I don't think he's going to change his messaging based on being in Rio Rancho, like you say. Mm-hmm. He'll mm-hmm. say, uh, other people think this is a national emergency, and I do too. Right. You know, right, I just right. think it's funny, just to say, yeah. if you need any last words, Please. I just think it's really funny that, um, you know, the capacity of the Santa Ana Star Center is about 5,700 people, and the capacity of Isleta Amphitheater, which held the KISS concert last night, is a capacity of 15,000. There's going to be more people at the KISS concert from last night than at the Trump rally, I'll call it. I love so. that. Thanks to all for agreeing to offer your opinions on the news this week. For you at home, don't forget to be part of the conversation through our Facebook Live interviews on Wednesdays during the lunch hour. We'd love to get your questions answered. We'll see you there. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and the Dnieper Natural History Programming Fund for KNME-TV and viewers like you.